Sandra Lee grew up in a rural section of northeast Tennessee. Her family, like most families in that area, made their living by growing tobacco. And so everyone in her family smoked. They were a church-going family, and everyone in their church smoked. And the local restaurants never considered banning smoking because everyone did it. No one ever talked about health risks or consequences because the culture of that community was built around an unquestioning acceptance of smoking. And so without much thought, Sandra started smoking at age 18. And then she went away to college in another state and got the shock of her life because almost no one on her college campus smoked. And for the first time, she was consistently presented with rational reasons why smoking is bad for you. And eventually, she made the choice to give it up. And for her, this wasn't just a change in personal habits. It was letting go of a family and community culture. And Sandra's experience highlights the powerful influence of culture on us. And whether it's the food we eat or the things that we drink or the way we dress or the politics we adopt or the career that we choose, so often those choices are shaped by the culture of our family and our community. Quite often we do what we do because everybody does it. We do what we do because it's normal and natural and expected by the community in which we live. However, when we become followers of Jesus, we enter a new community, a community called the family of God, or the body of Christ, or the church. And this community has a different culture, a culture that is defined by God through his word. And it's the culture of this new community that now should shape our attitudes and our actions, not the culture of the world around us. Which culture will influence us? That's a key question for the church. And that's the issue at play in the Bible passage that we're going to explore this morning. Christians living in the city of Pergamum are in a community with a pervasive, ungodly culture. It is tempting for some of those followers of Jesus to give in to that culture, and some of them do. How does Jesus respond? With love. He writes a love letter to them. A letter which reminds them that they cannot surrender their minds to the culture around them. Instead, they need to hold on to Jesus and his community. That's the culture which should shape the church. This is a message that every church needs to hear in every age. And so let's see what we can learn this morning from Jesus and see how this letter might apply to us as we look at the book of Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 to 17. This is Jesus dictating a letter to the apostle John to send to the church. And Jesus says to the angel of the church in Pergamum, write, these are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city. 
your city where Satan lives. Now, this letter begins with a very vivid picture of Jesus wielding a sharp, double-edged sword. And that, that, that sword always is a metaphor for the Word of God because Scripture is sharp and it's piercing. God's truth has the ability to cut deeply into our minds and our souls to expose spiritual darkness and to bring us into God's light. Followers of Jesus need the penetrating power of God's word in our lives. And this image of Jesus as the bearer of God's truth speaks directly to the culture of Pergamum because it is a city based on spiritual lies. At the time Jesus dictates this letter, Pergamum probably is the world center of idolatry. It is full of temples, scores of temples, dedicated to Zeus and other Greek and pagan gods. A couple of examples. One of the gods there is called Asclepius the Savior. There's even a temple dedicated to Rome where citizens come to worship Caesar as Lord. Think about that. Asclepius, the Savior, Caesar, the Lord, that is spiritual deceit. And those are just two of the false gods offered to the citizens of Pergamum. And because of that environment, most people give in, they yield, and they practice some form of idolatry. That's the culture of the city. It's the culture that surrounds the community of faith. And it's a culture that the church knows well. Because many believers in that church previously had been idol worshipers. And they were rescued from spiritual darkness when God's double-edged sword penetrated their souls and their hearts. And they realized that Jesus, Jesus is Savior and Lord. They now are part of this new community called the church. But they continue to live in a city that daily reminds them of their former lives. And I find it fascinating that Jesus does not say, pack your bags and leave. Why wouldn't he do that? Because the life of faith is not about escaping from the unbelieving world. The life of faith is about living in our world without letting the culture overwhelm us. That was true for the Christians in Pergamum, and it's true for us. And here's the affirmation. Despite being surrounded by idolatry and despite even being persecuted at times, these believers do not let go of Jesus. Even when a Christian named Antipas is martyred, they don't lose heart. And I find that impressive because martyrdom always is ugly. According to church legend, Antipas was roasted alive in a brazen bull. And this was a large, hollow statue shaped like a bull and made of brass. It was used to punish enemies of the state. Victims would have their tongues cut out, and then they would be sealed inside, and then a fire would be lit beneath that bowl. And as the metal grew hot, the person inside would scream in agony. 
And that bull was constructed with pipes and with whistles, which turned their moans into sounds like snorts and growls of a real live bull. It was for the amusement of the spectators who would gather. It was barbaric. And one of the many ways that the Romans turned, they turned martyrdom, they turned torture into entertainment. Now, we don't know if Antipas actually died this way, but we do know that some believers did. Yet, however this person was killed, it would be shocking to any church to have one of their members be killed for the faith. Uh, Imagine how we would feel if we left church this morning and outside was a government official who arrested one of us and took one of us away and executed us for the crime of following Jesus. That would be scary. That would shake us up. And yet the true test of faith is not to give way to fear. And that's how the believers in Pergamum respond. They refuse to let fear overcome their faith, so they resist the brutality of the ungodly culture of their community. And they continue to proudly bear the name of Christ. And by doing so, I think they can inspire every church in every age. And because of the stand they take, it's no wonder that Jesus commends them. And yet, there's more to this story. I once was talking with a friend about martyrdom, and he made a point I've never forgotten. He said, when push comes to shove... I really do think I could die for Jesus because that's, that's a one-and-done deal. The bigger challenge is this. Am I willing to be inconvenienced for Jesus? Am I willing to be marginalized for my faith? Am I willing to live with some ridicule for being out of step with my culture? I think that's a harder decision because it's one I must make every single day. I often think of his words. And I was reminded of those words precisely because of what Jesus says next to our spiritual ancestors in Pergamum. Let's continue on, verse 14. After the word of affirmation comes the word of correction, and Jesus says, Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin, so they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore. Otherwise, I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. What what a contrast here. Despite their willingness to hold firmly to their identity in Christ, there are some people in this congregation who are embracing ungodly aspects of the culture. And it is beginning to undermine the church from within. And Jesus gives two specific examples. First, there are some who are following the teachings of Balaam, a a false prophet who promoted idolatry. And there are some Christians who have adopted his views and they're eating food sacrificed to idols. This is probably easy to rationalize. It's not a serious thing like martyrdom. It's, It's probably just about going along to get along. 
I can picture a Christian in Pergamum saying to himself or herself, I love Jesus, and idols, they don't have any power over me, and I'm not worshiping them. I'm just eating some food that's part of the local culture. There's no harm in it. But Jesus knows there is harm in it. That's why he wants them to stop. You see, eating this food could tempt them to return to their old life and worship idols again. And furthermore, by competing in the culture, excuse me, by participating in the culture of a competing spirituality, the community gets a mixed message. Unbelievers might think, oh, you can be a Christian and not really have to make much in the way of changes in your life. And that's not the message that believers should send to the world. Because following Jesus is about being changed. It's about learning to live as a disciple. And so the message of Jesus to this church is if you've left idol worship behind, then you need to leave its related practices behind. And that includes more than food, because a big part of idol worship involves ungodly sexual activity. As part of worshiping idols, you might be expected to engage in sex with a temple prostitute or participate in an orgy associated with a particular spiritual season. And evidently, there are some believers in this church who are still doing such things. And that behavior is reinforced by other people in the church who promote the teachings of the Nicolaitans. And they believe that Christianity only was concerned with spiritual stuff. And that God wasn't really interested in the human body. That was corrupt and it was going to burn, so who cares? Therefore, it's okay to indulge the body. So be a glutton for food. Be a glutton for sex. Do whatever feels good. It's all okay with Jesus. Now, I understand why the believers in Pergamum might do this. Because that kind of behavior is normal in their community. It's customary. Everybody does it. That doesn't make it right. And worst of all, they're not just hurting themselves, they're hurting others. Believers who behave this way are not taking the light of Jesus out into the culture. They're bringing the darkness of the culture into the community of faith. And all of this going on in this ancient church highlights the tension that we face as Christians as we deal with the culture. And some believers fear the culture. And so they barricade themselves from it. Other believers, like some of these in Pergamum, become immersed in the culture. Because that's way more comfortable. I don't believe either response is right. I believe God wants us to stay engaged with the culture in order to influence it. So we can lead people to Jesus. And it's not easy to find that balance. Now, we obviously live in a culture very different from the culture of Pergamum, but we're not immune from the challenges they faced. You and I are surrounded by powerful cultural idols that can have tremendous pull on us, and they potentially can hinder our ability to be faithful disciples of Jesus. So what are the cultural idols of America? 
Well, many social commentators believe the three biggest ones we battle are money, power, and sex. I think they're right. Money becomes an idol when we pursue it as a goal rather than use it as a tool. Power becomes an idol when we use it for our own purposes rather than hold it and exercise it as a sacred trust. And we can idolize power in others if we find ourselves placing trust in the marketplace or in government rather than in God. Watch the behavior that takes place at the New York Stock Exchange or at political rallies. And if you watch, it's pretty clear that for some people in those environments, what they are expressing is idolatry. They are worshiping money and power. And then there's sex, which is a huge idol in our culture. It fills our shows and our movies and our music and our humor. And sex dominates the thinking of way too many people and they find themselves relentlessly pursuing sexual pleasure. And as followers of Jesus, you and I must not blindly surrender our minds to those cultural idols. We must ask the Holy Spirit for wisdom and discernment so we don't follow the pattern of the Christians in Pergamum and wind up embracing ungodly lifestyles that pull us away from Jesus and erode the faith of the church from within. Oh, we need to learn to listen to the Spirit so we can have discernment about our culture. Now, to those three commonly recognized cultural idols, I'd add a fourth one, personal independence. You see, we live in a culture that makes an idol out of individualism. In ways both overt and subtle, we are encouraged by our culture to hold back from the commitments of community. And that is profoundly unbiblical thinking, as Jesus makes clear. Did you notice that the entire church of Pergamum is not in error? It's only some people that are getting it wrong, and yet Jesus takes the whole church to task. Why does he do that? Because in Christianity, the individual and the community are inseparable. We are accountable to each other, and we are responsible for each other. And so this love letter from Jesus offers a message of group correction for some individual behavior. And I think this is one of the most difficult aspects of Christianity for American believers to learn. Because our minds have been co-opted by our cultural, uh, culture of individualism. We've been conditioned to think and act based on our personal priorities. And the idea of being accountable to someone else, oh boy, do we resist that. And we need to let God transform our ways of thinking so we increasingly can become the kind of community that God wants us to be. And to move forward on that journey requires that we lay aside our prideful independence and practice some humility with one another. It requires a willingness to submit to one another as the Apostle Paul writes about in 
Ephesians 5.21. It requires a willingness to defer to others and not always strive to get our own way. And those kinds of things will happen more and more naturally as we get to know each other better and be intentional about building our community. And that's why a few months back we started the Dine With Me Challenge where we're urging everyone to have someone from this church over to your house for a meal. Invite someone in the church that you don't know over to your home so you can build a relationship. Because that's where community begins. As we build connections with one another. I know that many of you have been doing this and we need to keep doing it. In addition, on November 24th, which is the Sunday of Thanksgiving weekend, we're going to have a special time that morning focused on giving thanks for this community of faith. We're going to have just one worship service that morning at 10.30 a.m. so that we all can be together. And after the service, we're going to have some light refreshments over in the gym so that we can fellowship together and continue building relationships. These are simple things to do, and yet they're profound because our culture pushes us toward independence. But Jesus invites us into community. And that's the culture that we want to embrace and celebrate and continually strengthen. And as we continue to build our community, we will find ourselves gossiping less and criticizing less. And if relationships are broken, we will pursue reconciliation more aggressively. And we'll find it much more natural to look out for each other and care for each other. And if false teaching starts to creep into the the church, we won't stand idly by because we will care for one another And we'll want to keep other followers of Jesus from being led astray. And you see, in Pergamum, they evidently don't care enough for each other. So no one has addressed the problem of the spiritual lies in their midst. They're letting it go on. And that's why Jesus calls the entire church to repent. If they don't, he says, I'm going to step in. Now, when Jesus steps in, his goal is not judgment, but restoration. Jesus' goal is always to come to his wayward children and bring them back to himself. And when followers of Christ learn to listen to the Holy Spirit and repent, that's when we move from failure to victory. And that's how Jesus wraps up this particular love letter. Look at his final words. Verse 17. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. This is one of the things I love about Jesus. Whenever he points out an area of life that we need to fix, He always offers us hope. And if we respond to him and if we choose to repent, then he reminds us of the great blessings that are in store for us in this life and in the next. And he offers two specific blessings to the Christians in Pergamum. 
And I think the meaning of these blessings probably was clear to them, but it's rather obscure to us. We don't know exactly what Jesus means by the hidden manna. A number of explanations have been suggested by Bible commentators. Here's the most simple explanation I've come across. During the years that the Israelites wandered in the wilderness, God miraculously provided them with manna as food. And in a similar way, the Pergamum believers live in a spiritual wilderness. They're surrounded by idolatry, but that culture will not feed their minds and their hearts and their souls. They don't need to eat food offered to idols. Instead, they can eat and drink from the word of God. His truth will nourish them and sustain them. And the meaning of the white stone also is unclear. Again, numerous ideas have been proposed, but but here's what I think this refers to. Many idol worshipers in that day carried a lucky charm around their wrist, around their neck. It usually was a stone, and inscribed on that stone was the name of their favorite god. And they would keep that name secret, believing it gave them spiritual power. So Jesus might be saying here, When you were idol worshipers, you you wore a charm with a secret name on it. And you don't need that. There's no power in that. I've got a better stone waiting for you. Whatever the meaning, though, of the manna and the stone, one thing is very clear. These are special blessings that Jesus will give to those who listen to the Spirit. Spiritual victory belongs to those who whose minds and hearts belong to Jesus, not to the culture around us. Dr. Ed Stetzer is a a pastor and a church planter and a theologian. And a few years ago, he had a very distinctive experience. He was able to visit Pergamum, now known as Bergama, and it's in the nation of Turkey. And here's what he wrote about that experience. I had the opportunity to preach about Pergamum as I stood among its ruins on the hilltop. As we worshiped, we could hear the Islamic call to prayer ringing out from the mosques in the town below. And it was a startling irony. Here I was preaching the gospel in a place that once had many Christians, but today is 99% Muslim. And what was I preaching about? Jesus' letter to the Pergamum church where he's warning the church about the dangers of compromise with competing spiritualities. And as we explored the ruins of ancient Pergamum, it occurred to us that we were viewing one possible future for the American church. So here's the lesson from Pergamum. It isn't enough to simply not deny Christ in the face of opposition. We also must stand against the subtle influences of the culture around us. We cannot let worldly and satanic philosophies creep into our lives and into our churches. We must continually, continually repent from those things and turn toward Jesus. And I also say, Amen. Jesus' love letter 
to our spiritual ancestors in Pergamum is a wake-up call for the church in every age. I believe we need to take some time to reflect and pray on what Jesus might be saying to us. How is the culture influencing you? How is the culture influencing me? How is the culture influencing us? Where are we tempted to go along to get along? And what must we do to care for each other so that we help each other hold firmly onto Jesus and then carry his light out into the community to influence that culture and to draw people to Christ? Jesus says, He who has an ear, let him hear the Spirit says to the churches. Are we listening?